I love looking at how the disciples would understand and interpret the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies in their time. I love that because I, 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 I find it interesting to see the things that they saw as fulfillments. We all have one thing inside of our head, but inside of their minds, the, the, the thing that they saw as fulfillment, it always would blow my mind away. As we launch into Advent, this is a very special season for us. And this morning is a very special sermon. And I'm going to explain a little bit more as we go, go into it. But the sermon, it represents hope, Right? It represents hope. That's the first candle that we have lit over here. It represents hope. And when I think about hope, I, I, I think about this prophecy in the book of Isaiah. I think about this prophecy in the book of I, Isaiah. Is this Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4? We can throw that up, please. It reads like this. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint, or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. People of God took this prophecy to heart. I mean, they had it memorized, etched out of their minds, etched out of their heart. They knew it word for word. It was waiting for this, this servant king who would one day come and bring justice. They had experienced injustice and oppression in so many different ways through our history, so many different times, different oppressors at different times, in different ways, even at times oppressing themselves. They felt downtrodden. But they held on to hope throughout generations, throughout time they would pass hope on to the next generation let me tell you about this prophecy remember this at you inside of your mind he's coming though at times hope felt fleeting it felt like it was just outside of grass but they kept holding well, centuries later they were still waiting, still passing on hope, still passing it on to the next generation. And you get to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, you find Jesus. Jesus, he is this, this local rabbi, but he's different from the other rabbis. There's something different about him. He functioned, he moved around differently. And in, in, in the book of Matthew, we're going to be in the book of Matthew today. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter, chapter 12. Matthew is one of the disciples he had walking around with him. He would tell Matthew, write these things down. Pay attention. Look, observe, write it down. 
this is one Matthew, he, he studies Jesus and he, he writes things down. And as he is studying and writing things down, he is becoming more and more convinced that this is that promised servant. He's becoming more and more convinced that this particular time when as Matthew is watching Jesus, he's doing something and Matthew is watching Jesus and, and he feels like he is witnessing the prophecy of Isaiah unfolding right in front of his eyes. But then, no, this is him. This is him. And he writes it down, recording his thoughts. That's in Matthew chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. Matthew 12, 17 through 21. If we could throw that up on the on a, on a projectors for me. In Matthew 12, 17 to 21, it says this. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Whatever that thing that he was doing. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to pick. In his name the Gentiles hope. Jesus is doing something. He's doing something. And Matthew interprets what Jesus is doing as an act of justice being fulfilled in front of his very eyes. A justice, a justice that impacts the nations. And, and he sees the Gentiles as representing the nations, so, so he just puts in Gentiles right there. But it's the way, the way that this justice is being enacted, it's a part of the prophecy. The way it's being, not just that it's being done, but the way it's being done is a part of the prophecy. And that's what Matthew was witnessing. And he's writing down, and this is connecting some dots for him. It says he will not quarrel. So whatever he's doing, he's not getting caught up in the argument. He's not getting caught up in the debates. He's just enacting the justice. He says not crying aloud on the streets making sure everyone hears his voice. No, 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 no. Whatever he's doing, he's low-key about it. He's gentle enough that he doesn't break those already bruised from the injustice. He's gentle enough that he doesn't quench what little smoldering flame they have left. And like Isaiah says, he doesn't give up. He keeps on until justice is enacted. And it gives hope to the nations. It gives hope. Now, to understand what he's doing, what is this thing that, that Matthew is, is, is interpreting as justice being enacted, you have to go back to verse 9. We'll work your way back down to verse 17 to see the action. So let's throw Matthew chapter 12 verses 9 through 17 up. I'll just read from there. It reads like this. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. 
And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hands. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored. Just as sound as the other. Just as sound as the, the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him. And he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. You see, anything that detracts from or hinders something from living into the intrinsic good that God has created for it to be is an injustice. See, justice means righteousness, and righteousness is defined by God's definition of good. He created things to be good. And so doing righteousness is the act of applying justice to a situation that impacts a, a person. It's called restorative justice. It's, it's, it's taking intentional steps to, to advocate for and see restoration inside somebody's life. To see healing inside somebody's life, but it's taking intentional steps. An example of this is in Psalms 146, verses 7 through 9. If we could throw that up, please. The Psalms 146, verses 7 through 9, it starts with Who executes justice for the oppressed? Who gives food to the hungry? And then it further describes what this execution of justice looks like. It says, the Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners, the, 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 the foreigners. The Lord upholds the widow and the fatherless. He's describing what justice looks like. Scripture has taught them all these things. Scripture has taught them all these things that are acts of, of justice. So Matthew was watching Jesus, and he interprets Jesus as an act of healing the sick, as an act of restorative justice. He sees Jesus combating the injustice of their sickness despite the injustice of their leaders who are creating barriers to their restoration. That's what he sees going on there. And the Pharisees, they're, they're attempting to trap Jesus in a theological debate about whether or not it's right for these image bearers to be, re to be restored now on the Sabbath when the ability for restoration is present or some other time that fits better in their theology. Even if the moment of restoration is past, what I love about Jesus is that he avoids the debate. 
He avoids the debate. He plainly proclaims the truth and just moves on to hell, leaving no time to go back and forth of his that truth was up for debate. Hey, he doesn't leave time. He's like, he's like, nah, y'all would do this for your pets. Y'all would do this for your pets. Of course it's right. Let me see your hand. No, no, no space in between. Let's figure it out. We're going to one day come to an agreement. He needs to be held now. So he avoids the quarreling and just lives into righteousness. Sometimes we get too caught up in all the arguments and the debates, needing to prove them wrong and ourselves right when we need to just start living in the truth. We're too busy over here. We're trying to figure it out. We're debating. See, we line up theologically while somebody is over there hurting, waiting for you to figure out your theology. They need this restoration now. You keep watching Instead of staying at this place where there was all these barriers to justice and pressure is mounting against them because now they're starting to plot, what does he do? He leaves. And he goes to this space that gave more freedom to live into justice and he just heals everyone. He's like, what? Y'all giving a problem? Y'all tripping? Yo, we're going to go over here. And he just heals everybody. Everybody's getting healed. You follow the story. He does it so much so that when they run out of people that are physically sick, they start breeding demon-possessed people, and they're getting healed too. That's what goes on with the rest of the story. He's like, yo, there's freedom over here. But notice he's not trying to bring attention to himself. It's not what he's doing. He doesn't have a point to prove. He sees them, and he makes it about their restoration. That's the point, not his publicity. He can care less about the photo op, so he tells them to keep it on the low. Don't tell anyone. But that's the prophecy of Isaiah. He will not cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice on the streets. Matthew was connecting the dots. And talking to the Pharisees, Jesus, he assumed that they would, they would care for one of their animals, and he mentions how much more should you care for humans? Anything less would be to treat them less than the image bearers of God. As a matter of fact, in this situation, anything less would treat them less than animals. That's how they felt. Like animals, less than animals. You see, a lot of the time these cold theological debates and acts that are disconnected from the spirit and heart of God can break an already bruised spirit while they're waiting for you to figure out your theology. The prophecy said, bruised reed, he shall not break. They can, they can quench the flame of hope that's already just smoldering because it's barely holding on. But the prophecy says, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. You see, the promised servant pursues justice with compassion and empathy. These image bearers that are used to feeling unseen, used to feeling over, overlooked, feel seen. 
and it produces hope. So what they do, follow him. I'm seen here. I'm noticed here. I'm cared for here. Notice when Matthew describes what he's witnessing, he gives Jesus a name. I love looking when they quote from Old Testament texts. I love looking at what are the extra things they add? What are the words they exchange? Because it helps to contextualize it for the moment. So now Matthew is writing it down and he adds something. He gives Jesus a name. He calls them the beloved. The beloved. He's getting this designation from what he heard the Father say at Jesus' baptism. He recorded it earlier on. First, let me, let me, let me, let me back up some. In Isaiah 42 and 1, the prophecy says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. And Matthew records Jesus' baptism in chapter 3, verse 17, where Yahweh speaks at Jesus' baptism, identifying Jesus as the one with whom I am well pleased. He does it again at the transfiguration, with whom I am well pleased. This person my soul delights in. And they've been hopefully waiting for this person. And Yahweh identifies this person as his beloved son. Here's the person. Here's the servant. Here's who you've been waiting for. My beloved son. His beloved son brings justice by loving people more than the debate. By, 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 by loving people more than the photo op. And what happens is that the love makes space for hope. Know that. Love makes space for hope. People who are broken and vulnerable, who feel unseen and unloved, now feel seen and loved. And they, they follow him around because the love gives them a sense of belonging. I belong here. I felt love here. In a world that makes them feel that they just don't belong. Where do I fit in that? They feel loved by the beloved because he is the essence of love. And they want to be where he is at. Love makes you feel seen, like you belong. I can get with it. I can get with it. I remember growing up as a kid, Christmas time was a tough time for me. Because what Christmas time meant for me was that was the time when I was going to go back to school and everybody was going to be showing their stuff. And probably I could show the brand new pair of socks that my mother stored up inside of her closet waiting to present it for me for Christmas. Probably I could, I could, I could show the, 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 the whitey tidies that, that my mom saved up to get for me. And stuff, the t-shirts. My other cats was walking shell top Adidas's and everything else. And probably I got some sneakers, probably if they cost like 40 bucks and stuff, which was a lot. So we just got used to it and just like, whatever. You know, most of the people out of our neighborhood were struggling like that too and stuff. 
and just didn't have an expectation for anything much. And that was fine. That was fine. We understood the family. We understand what was going on. I was 14 when I said, Mom, don't even try no more. Don't, don't worry about it. Get something for, the, for, for my sisters. And I remember God just loving on, on, on me. There was this Muslim family that moved into the neighborhood next door. But they seen me. The mom, she would strike up conversations while I was waiting at the bus stop with her son. They knew my story. They knew that I, that I loved art. But I didn't have any money to invest inside of myself. I thought we didn't have that. And it was either invest in the art or them streets was calling. I remember one day they decided for Christmas, even though they didn't celebrate it, they was buying me a Christmas gift. It was an airbrush. Oh, that thing cost like a couple of hundred dollars. That was like equivalent of like thousands of dollars for me. But they was investing inside of me. They, they seen me. They, didn't, they, they, they wasn't getting caught up in the barriers and they just wanted the love. And I just wanted to be whatever they were because I felt love. I felt like I belonged as a part of their family. I just wanted to be whatever they was. Whenever they did family trips, I wanted to go on the family trips. I just wanted to be with them. And that's how I became a Muslim. The point is, love speaks fathoms. That's why we do things like Affordable Christmas. Because I know there's a lot of families that are just like that. And it's an opportunity for us to show love and speak differently. It's not about the gifts, it's about the love. It's an opportunity. Well, back to, to, to Matthew and, and Jesus and the story, we fast forward. People continue to feel drawn to the beloved. They continue to feel drawn to him. And it creates a community of people all centered around the beloved. Who all act like the beloved. Because they themselves are loved by him. They are married to him. They are one with him. You fast forward to Ephesians where this is after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But the beloved has continued the mission to those that he loved. I don't have a slide with it, but I'm a, I want to read Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we 
her redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Notice the amount of communal language is inside of there. Over and over and over again, us, we, our, our, we, us, and all of that communal language is centered around the beloved. He's building a community of love. He's building a community of love, and this is the hope that people have. That no matter what their walk of life is, no matter where you come from, no matter your achievements or your failures, no matter your past, no matter if you fit into the broken culture of this world or you don't, you are brought into a community where it's clear that you are loved and others are loved by you. A community of love. Love becomes both the destination and the means. This is the kind of community that I want to be a part of. That's what I want. I just think, God, the kind of community where love drives how we navigate the tensions of life. I'm not talking about some superficial love that acts like there is no tensions. But the one that understands the love of grace and truth is the only way to navigate those tensions. So as we, we, we started to give further thought to this is leaders inside of our body, how the vision of community centered around love have sustained the people of God through tensions even in recent history. When you go back to the civil rights era, you start to hear the term beloved community. You start to hear that term more. The term was first coined in the early part of the 20th century by a philosopher, a theologian by the name of Josiah Royce. Now, Royce, he founded the Fellowship of Reconciliation where he talked about the term pretty often. One of the members of the Fellowship of Reconciliation was a man by the name of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. King was the one that made the term popular because he invested in it with deeper meaning. And that deeper meaning captured the imagination and hearts of, of people all over the world because he would start to speak about it and preach about it and preach about it and speak about it. And he started to talk about, about it in all of his speeches. And in, in, in 1956, King spoke of the beloved community as the end goal to all the boycotts. Like, we're not just boycotting for the sake of boycotting. We're going somewhere. When the Supreme Court desegregated the seats of the Montgomery buses, King said, the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. I think about this quote from Martin Luther King I want to put up on this topic. Oh, we could throw that quote up for me. It says this. It is this type of spirit, this type of love, that can transform opponents into friends. It is this type of understanding, goodwill, that will transform the deep gloom of the old age into the exuberant gladness of the new age. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of men. 
He had a concept in his heart, inside of his mind. The core value of, of his beloved community was agape love. The love of God operating in the human heart. Here's what King said about agape love. Let's, oh, can you throw that up for me? Agape does not begin by discriminating between worthy and unworthy people. It begins by loving others for their sakes. And it makes no distinction between a friend and an enemy. It is directed towards both. Agape is love seeking to preserve and create community. <laughs> King's philosophy was in the beloved community, justice for all people is an expression of love. That's why he was thought to make statements like, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. He saw it as the birthright of, of every human being in the beloved community. Their birthrights. Another quote from King on this topic. We can throw that up. Well, you can throw this next quote up for me real quick. He says, well, I don't think of political power as an end. Neither do I think of economic power as an end. They are ingredients in the objective that we seek in life. And I think that end of that objective is a truly brotherly society, the creation of the beloved community. Why am I sharing all this this morning? A few months ago, we made a huge announcement that after 10 years of faithfully serving in, in mission as a part of Redemption Church, that the Lord was calling us out. Much of this has to do with um, the freedom to live into many of the things talked about today, the way that we feel the Lord has called us to live into those things. Things that we believe speak into issues of justice at its core, and we don't want to be tied up with theological debates anymore. It's done. The question was constantly asked, what's going to be the new name? What's going to be different? We slowed down, listened, and prayed because we didn't want to be reactionary to reactionary and let tensions shape what came next. We wanted love to shape what came next. We want to love. The Lord has been loving us all the way through. No reason for that to stop. A couple of years ago, we was getting ready um, for one of our elders' retreat at the end of the year and just praying, Lord, what are you speaking? And one of the things he said that he was calling us into deeper maturity, meaning he wanted to make us more Solid for the mission that he called us to from the get Things that, that, that we was dibbling, dabbling with and playing around with. He said he wanted those things to become more real and more solid and there would be a deeper embodiment. But I didn't know what he was preparing us for at that time. Then at the end of 2022, we started to navigate some tensions and 
Grenada to speak truth to light. And the Lord spoke the words, go, be, trust. But again, I had no idea what he was preparing us for. After patiently seeking the Lord and confirming in the community of mothers and fathers, it became clear. Go meant he was sending us out of redemption as much as we loved the fellowship. But he was sending. Be meant he wanted us to be everything he called us to be without reserve. No debating about it. No playing around with aspirations that, that never become reality. Just be and trust him. Just be. Go, be, trust. And people ask, well, well, well why don't be the new name? <laughs> there were some practical considerations like, what if it's something with an R? Because Miguel got an R tattooed on him. I don't like, I don't got no tattoos, so I'm good, fam. But you could turn, you could, you could change it. Some things sounded like knee-jerk reactions, but, but we needed the Lord to reveal us to us. No, 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 not what, hey, what do I want to do, Lord? What are you saying? What are you already doing? What are you laying down? Show us, Lord. And we started to listen to him speak through a variety of voices, some from outside. Started to listen to voices of certain mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters inside of our community. And the more we listen to the Lord through all these different voices, the more his voice became clearer and clearer. See, so many times we had heard from people from different walks of life that had come and said that they felt welcomed in this community. I know it wasn't because of anything that, that we were so good with. It had to do with him. It had to do with him. People that felt seen, people that felt, felt loved, and I know it wasn't, it wasn't us. It had to do with him. And for some, even as they wrestled through difficult theological positions or, or our shortcomings as leaders, they still found love. And the question was, Lord, what do you want to do? What do you want the name to be? And it became clear to all of us. He was saying, I want you to be what I made you to be, which is love community of love. So I say all that to say, we believe what God has called us to do is to start a family of churches called the Beloved Community. A community of love, a community that, that, of, of churches that, that, are, that are committed to embodying what it means to be a beloved community. To live into that and all of its ups and its downs. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me wrap us up because I want to spend some time and, 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 and sing, but it's all about hope. In this document, Listing about 25 traits of a beloved community, 
we're taking some time to to look over it and editing it and we're adapting it, but I want to share seven of those and then we'll we'll sing. One, the beloved community offers radical hospitality to everyone, an inclusive family that recognizes and honors the image of God in everyone, not an exclusive club. We want our family of churches to be a place where everyone feels welcome and seen. Two, the beloved community recognizes and affirms differences, not eradicates them. We believe the distinctions that God gave to humanity puts his image on display in deeper depths. We want to honor that. Three, the beloved community blends faith and action to fight against injustices like poverty and homelessness, hunger. Faith and action, because faith is the reason why, but faith without works is why. Dead. We want to be a people that live into that. For the beloved community encourages and embraces artistic expressions of faith from diverse perspectives. There's no way that you're going to have a diverse body of people and not have a diverse display of faith with the same one Jesus. It puts Jesus on display in the depths. And art has always been a universal language that speaks to people throughout time. And if you know anything about this body and stuff, we love art. Father, the beloved community gathers together regularly for table fellowship, meeting the needs of everyone in the community. Regular fellowship around tables has always been a staple of the church. Always been. You see it all the way back in Acts. The beloved community, six, beloved community relies on scripture reading, prayer, and corporate worship for strength. We know where our strength lies. We're going to slow down and we're going to pray together. We're going to sing together. We're going to study the word together because we know where our foundation is at. Seven, the beloved community shares power and acknowledges the inescapable network of mutuality among the human family. We're going to resist the world's definition of power and idolatry, leaning into a family of mothers and fathers who lead our community together. See, God wants to mature us into a deeper embodiment of his beloved community right here to give hope in this community right here. Community of love that gives hope to all. Now, before we, we pray, there is some communal intentionality that we're going to need to live into because he's calling us somewhere and we're going there together. I remember when God carried the children the Israel out of Egypt, and he's taking them to the promised land. But he doesn't just go straight there. He slows down because he needed to disciple them into the next piece. That's when the Ten Commandments came in and the law came in. You start seeing structural changes 
Moses getting discipleship from Jethro, teachings and doctrines and everything else because he's preparing them to live into this thing. So I want you to know you're going to start hearing a lot of rhythms of intentionality coming out. And we're making time to disciple our hearts into being this beloved community. And I want to say from now, everybody on task, everybody gather around these rhythms as you hear them. One of those things starting Christmas Eve, we're going to return to one service. Starting Christmas Eve. It's something about building a beloved community and seeing the members of that community all together. Worshiping together, listening together, and you need them together so the gifts can benefit the body. So we want to go back there so we can learn from one another, pray together. Christmas Eve, there won't be any morning service. We're going to have one family service at 7 p.m. And then New Year's Eve, we're going to start our first 10 a.m. service, one service at 10 a.m. There's something about being together and not feeling separated and disjointed. But also, there's going to be a greater focus on prayer. So even though we're starting at 10, we're still going to be opening up earlier for prayer right here in the sanctuary. If you need prayer, we want to say, come out and pray. Come out and lay hands on one another. Call and cry out to the Lord together. And then we're going to worship together. These things that have set us into, into motion to be the people that God has called us to be. A lot of intentional discipleship that we're going to be asking everyone to get on board with. So we transition together as a family. So you're going to hear about classes that are going to be happening on Sunday afternoons. You're going to hear about podcasts and videos, art and articles, all intentionally shaping us into this new season. Making clear what does it mean for mothers and fathers to do ministry together? What does it look like? What does it mean to see the gifts of God functioning throughout the entire body? What does it mean to give clarity regarding leadership, structures, offices, the church itself? We're going to disciple into this new thing, and we're going to go hard for the king like never before. No holding back. So here's what I ask you to do. Let's start now. Let's spend a few minutes praying about that beloved community. That God would use it as a light of hope. First, in here. Secondly, out there, all around us. 